Um, so my name is Danielle Farmer. I am one of the newer community mental health trainers here on our PMHP team. So it's nice to be with y'all. This is my first official uh, training with the team. Uh, so I'm really glad to be with you all. Happy to, to have it be such an important topic. Um, so I a little bit about me. I am a licensed clinical social worker. Um, I have practiced primarily with children uh, throughout my career for the last 12 years, and so I've worked in um, elementary schools and middle schools and worked with high school youth um, in various capacities. I was a teacher and then primarily worked as a school social worker and um, school counselor. So unfortunately, during that time, I did have a lot of experience with conducting risk assessments, speaking to students about suicide, self-harm. Um, topics like that. And so over the years, I garnered a lot of tips and um, just knowledge along the way. Uh, and I feel really passionate about sharing that with other providers, because I do think it is a point of anxiety and can be a point of, of um, panic for, for providers thinking about youth suicide specifically. And so I'm excited to share um, some information with you today. And so I also want to give a shout out to Danielle Cameron, She's another provider on our team, another community mental health trainer, um, and she really helped to develop some of the content with me and added a lot of um, helpful information. So I just want to give her a shout out. One thing that I want to, of course, acknowledge is that this topic is a really emotionally heavy topic, right? So having um, a topic such as this can bring up a lot of anxiety um, or a lot of sensitive feelings, whether we're thinking about our own position or responsibility as a clinician, or maybe grief if we've been impacted by this topic personally or professionally, or maybe even um, experienced our own um, experiences with these emotional processes. And so I want you to be sure to be taking care of yourself during this training. I don't want you to approach it as if we were just talking about, um, you know, a new software or a technical training, you know, this, this, these involve very heavy gray topics. And so while, of course, it's urgent, um, it's an urgent topic, it's an important topic, this won't be the last opportunity you have to learn about it. So if you need to step away, do so. If you need to um, release tension in your body during the training by either, you know, taking a walk while you have on headphones to listen to this or stretch when you need to, or things like fidget toys. I myself have fidget toys. So uh, there's no shame in, in doing whatever you need to do to take care of yourself um, while we go through this training. Okay. So a few training norms and values um, before we get started, just a few guiding principles I think will aid in our work today. Uh, the first one is tolerance. So just acknowledging that as we see from the polls, everyone is coming from different experiences, probably different agencies, different roles, um, and everyone is coming with their own personal and professional perspective today. Um, having a spirit of respect, whether it's in the chat or through um, verbal communication, for you know, other participants for our learning space today, and then especially about the groups that we'll be talking about and just you know the clients that we're thinking about. Um, having a spirit of curiosity, just want to encourage you to have that, that growth mindset and, and wanting more while, of course, taking care of yourself and being comfortable. Engagement, um, I would love for you to be as engaged um, as you feel comfortable to. And then the last one is just critical thinking. Um, some of the information in this training will be a little vague and, and that's purposeful. You know, everyone is coming from various agencies that have different protocols. Um, everyone is coming from different roles where they're um, obligated to different legal and ethical standards. And so I made the information a little more vague, a little more um, mendable so that you can then go and take it 
to your organization, to your role. And so just during the training, just, you know, keep a critical eye for how you can tweak and, and make fit for your organization and your role. Our objectives for today, well, the first part of this training, the first half really is really, I want you to understand um, youth mental health and youth uh, suicide. And so really diving into statistics, risk factors, warning signs, some of the more harrowing parts of the training for sure. Um, Some of it, a little more of the drier parts, but an important way to kind of understand um, and put into context some of the tips and interventions that we'll talk about later. Um, We'll review age-appropriate tools and best practices for understanding and assessing suicide risk in youth, protective factors and preventative factors, so more of that positive aspect of the training. Um, And then, of course, last but for sure not least, grounding and de-escalation techniques for you, for clinicians, for providers who are in, in these stressful risk assessment scenarios. So first, starting off, just kind of normalizing some terms and definitions that will come up um, during the training. In recent years, a lot of organizations have really advocated for the public, whether it's media or lay people, to kind of shift the way they discuss suicide um, in everyday situations to kind of break some of that stigma um, and discomfort that comes with talking about um, suicide. And a lot of times that stigma comes from language that has a lot of either judgment or is 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 not neutral language. And so what we've seen from the CDC and SAMHSA is advocating for instead of using phrases like committed suicide, um, which kind of ties into like committing a crime, right? Committing a sin has that negative connotation or a successful suicide, which kind of connotates that death is is success, right? Moving more towards completed suicide or, or even died by suicide, which has... Um, it's it's more neutral in that when whenever we list a cause of death, right, we die by car accident, death by cancer, death by heart disease, death by suicide is also in, in alignment with that neutral language. So it's not stigmatizing or or having a, a judgmental tone to it. Um, same thing with failed or unsuccessful suicide suicide attempts, right? It, it makes it seem like there's something wrong with the person who um, who completed the act um, and instead say an, an attempted suicide. The last one, um, you know, there's a lot of, there's there's a temptation, I think, sometimes, especially for adolescents to label certain behaviors as attention-seeking, right? We see it with adolescents. A lot of times we see that language um, geared towards um, people who identify as female, um, you know, kind of to like catastrophize or hysteric, make it seem like hysterical, um, you know, for, for clients. And so what I, you know, want to point out is that even if, you know, we doubt the intent behind a comment, the fact that someone is using that as a way to garner support still means that they need support, no matter what, that they they still need help, they still need support. Um, and, a, and a lot of times it's risky to interpret something as attention seeking, because it's sometimes a way to kind of just ease our own fear, like, oh, they don't really mean it, it's just attention. Um, and so it really can separate us from the client and can make the client um, even further pull away and miss out on that opportunity to connect. So really uh, moving towards help seeking versus attention seeking. Um, a really popular term that comes up in these conversations, of course, is suicidal ideation. Um, again, a lot of you, I'm sure already are familiar with these terms, but just refers to kind of the thoughts and wishes um, for death or desire to die. Um, 
some some people use passive versus active to refer to passive ide- ideation, kind of like I want to die, but I'm not going to do anything to act on it versus active and includes that planning that the trying to access means. Suicidal behaviors can also mean that, can mean those kind of planning and preparation um, things towards suicide. Lethal means um, is just a method that someone uses to complete suicide. So like a firearm, um, medication, um, and reducing access to lethal means. So like I said, shout out to that training that's coming up next week. Um, but it's really heralded as an important way to be preventative for suicide because the, the length of time between when someone makes the decision to complete suicide and when they actually proceed with the act sometimes can be as short as 10 minutes. And so because sometimes it can be that quick, hurried, last minute decision, not having means around you can really help to make someone um, rethink the, the decision. So lethal means is an important topic in, when we think about suicide. Um, The last one is non-suicidal self-injury or NSSI, um, also known as self-harm. And so this is um, behaviors that people engage in, whether it's cutting um, or that's that's usually the most popular one we hear, especially with adolescents. Um, But it's not always indicative that someone is suicidal. Um, Like if if someone is cutting, it doesn't always mean that they have a plan or, or plan to use that coping skill or that tool to kill themselves. Um, It is, however, um, it can be a risk factor. And studies have shown that youth are more comfortable sharing non-suicidal self-injury with other adults than they are comfortable with sharing their suicidal ideation. So someone may be, a youth may be sharing that with you to kind of test the waters and see how you react to that before they feel comfortable really um, disclosing some of their suicidal ideation. So Like I said, it's not always indicative, but it is a risk factor. It does go hand in hand. Um, And so you always want to assess, you always want to dig further um, if it's occurring. So like I said, the more kind of harrowing um, statistical part of the training. And so just to give you an idea of kind of the scope of suicide um, in children and the the topic, um, the name of this training is children and adolescents, because I really want to give a lot of information about both age groups. I feel like a lot of adolescent, um, a lot of training is is really focused on adolescents, right? Teens, um, because sometimes it's easier to assess and it's easier to think about um, how to gauge suicide in that group. But I really wanted to give a lot of information about children um, today as well, just because numbers are increasing in those age groups. So when we think about children, um, this is data from um, the CDC. Every year they publish mortality data Um, And it's really an important source of kind of demographic data, cause of death information. And so this is from 2020. This is the most recent one that they've published. So suicide was listed as the 10th leading cause of death for ages five through nine. So that's like early elementary school Um, that resulted in about 20 deaths or 1.2% of all deaths for this age group. Um, the, the, The methods Um, for causes of death were majority strangulation or hanging, um, followed by poisoning and fire. And then when we go over to the next um, age group, um, we see that suicide was the second leading cause of death for 10 through 14, which is, of course, incredibly tragic. So it it equated to about 581 deaths or 21% of all deaths for this age group. I believe number one was accidents. Um, And so um, you know, second leading cause of death is, is incredibly harrowing. And so we're seeing um, an increase, the, sorry, the 
Strangulation accounts for about half, um, but also an increase in firearm usage um, and poisoning at about 5%. So some more statistics about this particular age group. Um, like I said, we're really seeing an increase um, in numbers for this group. I want to shout out my colleague, Larry, who's on our call, um, who actually shared an incredible video, um, which discussed, you know, some of the, the demographics and the the statistics that are coming up for this group. And so compared to when we say five years ago, 10 years ago, um, we're seeing 47% higher visits for suicide attempts or suicidal behaviors for five to eight-year-olds. That's incredibly young, right? That's kindergarten to about third grade um, and 182% higher for nine to, to 12-year-olds. And in fact, this nine to 12-year-old group was about 27% of the emergency department visits for all of children and teens. So we're seeing that that pre-adolescent group um, is really, really having a, a high number of, of suicide attempts. Um, and then we also see suicidal ingestion is one that's increasing. That wasn't kind of a, a highly used method in the past. So as we move up to um, the older category of, of uh, children, this, the way that the CDC does this data, it does include young adults. So I just wanted to give that, that preface that this is 15 through 24. So it's not only including teens, um, but the, it's a much, um, it's a little bit lower than the age group before, but still third leading cause, right? Which is still of course, um, tragic. And so that accounted for about 6,062 deaths or about 19% of all deaths for this age group. And so we see similar methods with firearm and strangulation still being the most common, um, followed by poisoning, poisoning, excuse me. Um, and then there's a new category that kind of emerges for this age group of falling or kind of, or jumping as, as a method um, for um, engaging in kind of suicidal behavior. So again, like I said, the, the research is a little bit more robust on adolescents. And so we do have a little bit more um, standardized data that comes from various organizations. So again, the CDC um, every year gives out a youth risk behavior survey. And so this provides kind of recent comprehension data on health behaviors and experiences. Um, they do one for high school and one for middle school. So according to their most recent one in 2019, they haven't released one for 2020 or 21 yet or 22. Um, but according to that, we see 36.7% of teens reporting persistent sadness and hopelessness, 19 seriously contemplating suicide, 16% making a plan, 9% attempted and 3% um, were injured in an attempt. So had to visit um, the emergency room or access medical support because of the attempt. So the next thing that I thought might be helpful as we kind of zoom in on some of the trends that we see are to think about youth suicide trends across identity markers to kind of get a feel for which groups are a little bit more at risk. So the next three slides are a little text heavy. Again, I apologize for that. I know that's not best practice. And it's more so for when you have the slides later for you to be able to kind of look at the research on your own. Um, so I won't go through each one. I'll just kind of highlight uh, key findings. And so one thing that above any group, um, Native American youth have the most risk um, for suicidal ideation, behaviors, and uh, attempts. Um, and this is especially true for that teenage through young adult um, group. They have the highest of any racial um, population um, in, according to the data. And there are a couple of 
groups that are also increasing that weren't kind of key focus groups before, but now in recent years, maybe in the last 10 years or so are, are pop popping up. So um, elementary school age Black youth, especially um, students who identify as male um, and Black and Latin Latinx uh, adolescent students who identify as female are seeing a, a sharp increase um, in suicidal uh, behaviors. Luckily, research is, when it comes to race and ethnicity, research is, is becoming more culturally competent in that they're able to make the distinction that it's not race that's the risk factor, right? It's the historical oppression or environmental conditions that go along with what has occurred in these communities that become the risk factor, right? So we want to make sure we always make that distinction. Um, again, very text heavy. I apologize for that. Uh, but really wanting a, a course to give you um, data to reference later on your own time. Um, but when we think about the identity markers of kind of sexuality, gender expression, um, children and adolescents who complete suicide are more likely to identify as male, whereas the adolescents who consider suicide, who plan or attempt or all the stages leading up to it are more likely to identify as female. And so that's something that's a that's a, a trend that we see in adults as well. Um, so that's that's mirrored in, in children. Um, LGBTQ plus youth are four times more likely to attempt suicide than their heterosexual peers. And what's more than that is transgender and non-binary youth are um, two, almost uh, over two times more likely to consider an attempt compared to their cisgendered LGBTQ plus peers. So I found that to be an, an interesting um, uh, statistic. Um, and we really see the intersection of race and gender expression or sexual orientation um, come together to kind of create um, at-risk populations where uh, Native American and Black transgender youth have the one of the highest, highest rates among youth. And then lastly, um, system-involved youth. Um, so thinking about um, adolescents that are in foster care or that had experience in the juvenile justice system, especially when they're placed in adult jails versus um, juvenile detention centers. Um, survivors of human trafficking or youth experiencing homelessness. These are all um, populations that have a lot of complex trauma, multiple risk factors at play um, to increase their, their risk level. Okay, so a quick sil either silent or in the chat, whatever you prefer, feel comfortable with, but a quick just kind of pause to reflect and how do you see the populations most at risk for suicidal thoughts and behaviors kind of show up on your caseload when you think about who you interface with the most, who is on your caseload, who's being referred to you or your organization, the clientele of your agency, how are these populations um, showing up for you? Do you have a lot of clients that could identify as any of these markers or do you not? Um, and then lastly, you know, how does your agency have any policies or programs designed to serve or advocate on behalf of these populations? And so, you know, of course, all of this data is wonderful, right? It's, it's great to know um, who's most at risk, who is experiencing these different risk factors, but um, what are we doing with it, right? What are we doing to either outreach to that, um, to these populations, increase engagement in these populations, um, have programming to support these populations? Um, so I see there's a lot of adolescents, teens that we're serving. And so, yeah, it does feel like um, that seems to be a more popular age group that um, we're seeing an intersection of programs for that we're seeing more of the of the data for. And so it seems to align with with what we're talking about.
So hearing all of that data, obviously we've seen the numbers and the um, statistics kind of kind of increase, especially from like say 2000 to about 2020, we were seeing these, these numbers increase and kind of come to a head. And then of course we know what happened in 2020, the pandemic, right? And so um, it kind of heightened between the pandemic and in 2020, the awareness, heightened awareness, um, you know, globally kind of of the racial and, and injustices of what's been happening in the United States, um, numbers again began to skyrocket. Um, and so I, there was a great quote from the chief psychiatrist at Children's Health Orange County, and she put it perfectly, I think, when she said there was there was a fire before the pandemic, right? But the pandemic was a can of gas that was poured on the fire. And so we're seeing um, an increase in emergency room visits, an increase in the need for therapy referrals, an increase in the full caseloads of therapists and, and um, uh, community centers um, throughout the, the country, not just in Los Angeles. And so in 2021, the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychi Psychiatry, excuse me, and the Children's Hospital Association declared a national emergency in um, child and adolescent mental health. And so I uh, thought that this was kind of a perfect quote from their report that they put out to kind of capture exactly how the pandemic had an impact on children and adolescents. So it says, as health professionals dedicated to the care of children and adolescents, we have witnessed soaring rates of mental health challenges among children, adolescents, and their families over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic, exacerbating the situation that existed prior to the pandemic. Children and families across our country have experienced enormous adversity and disruption. The inequities that result from structural racism have contributed to disproportionate impacts on children from communities of color. This worsening crisis in child and adolescent mental health is inextricably tied to the stress brought on by COVID-19 and the ongoing struggle for racial injustice and represents an acceleration of trends observed prior to 2020. The pandemic has struck at the safety and stability of families. More than 140,000 children in the United States lost a primary and or secondary caregiver with youth of color disproportionately impacted. So I thought that that kind of really encapsulated um, some of the things that have come from the pandemic. And I think what, what I would categorize the pandemic as kind of this universal risk factor, right? And so everyone experienced it, every child, every adolescent in some capacity, some of course were more, um, shielded from it than others, but every child in some capacity experienced the pandemic as a risk factor. And so it kind of just catapulted everything that was already in place before. So how exactly did the pandemic um, impact youth mental health? And so as adults, we know that the pandemic had a negative impact on our mental health. We were able to name, you know, the, the fear and the exhaustion and the grief um, impacted me in this way, or this is how I coped with it, or this is what I did. Um, but that's because we had that lived experience to, to know how to name our feelings and to know how to cope with it. But um, our children and adolescents, their brains are still developing, right? And so they don't yet have those skills to name or understand what they're feeling or interpret what their families are feeling or interpret what the media is telling them they should feel. Um, their, their brain development just isn't there. And so it was a tough time for them to experience something so um, traumatic and navigate that uncertainty of, of the time with a lot of 
rules that were fluid, right? One week we had to do this, the next week we had to do that. It was the, the loss of routine and structure was really hard for children. Um, also, again, the racially based health disparities, how the COVID-19 pandemic negatively impacted communities of color in a very different way, um, whether it was um, higher levels of likelihood of death or hospitalization from COVID um, or having uh, the life expectancy dramatically declined for various groups, right? When you couple that with an increase in media coverage of race-based violence for various groups um, throughout the pandemic, we're seeing that kids of color entered the pandemic and are leaving it with disproportionate amounts of trauma than other groups have. And so that is kind of a perfect storm for mental health um, impact. Of course, the pandemic was incredibly stressful for everyone, parents included, right? Um, if we have any parents here, I, it was, and myself included, I can attest that it was an incredibly difficult and stressful time um, to, to care for your needs as well as for um, your family. And so unfortunately, because of that in, increased stress, we saw a lot of in, uh, family stress and dysfunction. So that could look like um, growing numbers of emotional and physical abuse happening during the pandemic or a lot of job loss um, resulting in kind of economic stability um, during the, the COVID pandemic because of loss of jobs and uh, things like that. Again, grief, right? Loss of normalcy, grief for, for loved ones or for routine, that all came up um, during it. Um, loss of school connectedness as a factor. We'll get into protective factors in a little bit, but having that strong connection with school for those kids who are lucky enough to experience that um, is a huge protective factor for kids. And so when kids weren't able to access that, um, we saw that that did have a negative impact on their mental health, not being able to access um, the, the positive things that can that can come from school, such as routine, consistent meals, caring adults, um, their friend group, right? So having that um, was, was a, a difficult part of the pandemic. And Another part was as we shifted to an increase in electronic communication, everyone was much more aware of what they looked like, right? We're constantly looking at ourselves on Zoom, Google Classroom, you know, whatever um, uh, methods that the students were using to engage in learning. That's not something they had to do before in the classroom. They weren't looking at themselves. They weren't thinking about how they looked when they were talking as much because they couldn't see it, right? So the increase in that, um, and the increase in social media use, right? Because that was the only way they could connect with, with people for, for a while. That all kind of led to an increase in body image issues as well. So um, one thing about the stigma around suicide is that, it, that that's dangerous about suicide stigma is that it can sometimes be seen as a personal failure or a failure of the family, right? Um, but I want to dispel that stigma and that myth um, that it's, you know, an individual concern, but it's it's actually a public mental health concern because it's systemic, right? There are many factors that influence someone's decision to consider it. Um, and so I want to influence some of the risk factors in a, in a systemic way, right? So thinking about the different um, systems that interact with a person. So on the individual level, um, some of the risk factors that have been associated uh, with suicide, whether it's ideation or behaviors or actual attempts. Um, we have history of mental health conditions. And one thing that's interesting is for younger kids, 
um, mental health conditions that are characterized more by impulsivity or aggression, like ADD, ADHD, conduct disorder, oppositional defiant disorder, those are more associated um, with suicide, um, suicidality. Whereas with older kids, then we get into more of the mood disorders, the depression, the feelings of hopelessness. Um, those are more associated with death. So I thought that that was an interesting um, difference between the two types of groups. Um, childhood maltreatment, especially when we think about ACEs and that's um, ad adverse childhood experiences, especially those associated with violence. Um, so that it can be a risk factor, a poor view or connection with one's own um, ethnic identity has been shown to be a risk factor. Um, prior attempts. So um, it's actually been shown that young children who attempt suicide are actually six more, six times more likely than their peers to attempt again in adolescence. So that history can, can be a risk factor for, for, for children, for sure. Um, substance use, especially in older kids, not as much in, in younger kids, but in older kids, it comes up. Chronic medical conditions. Um, this is one for adults for sure, but it can also be true for kids. Um, it can kind of indirectly or directly increase their risk by kind of decreasing their sense of belonging, their pain tolerance, um, what coping skills are available to them. But it can also kind of increase their feelings of hopelessness, burdensome. Uh, lack of control, right? So that can that can play a part. And then school problems as well, like expulsion, suspension, things related to kind of those externalized behaviors. So when we move out um, from the individual level to more of that kind of social relational level, we see things, um, risk factors like family discord. So that can include parental conflict, right? Low parent, low parental monitoring. So that can include like disconnect between how the child would view their mental health versus how the parent would view their mental health. Parental incarceration, substance use, mental health, domestic violence. Um, so I think that that kind of speaks to some of, I saw a comment about some of the other risk factors. So yes, exactly. I think that that can, that can play a part um, and be risk factors for sure. Um, when we think about, you know, moving out from the family and more socially, uh, there's, a lot of um, evidence that there a recent social crisis or relational victimization happens close in proximity to a suicide attempt. And, and what that is, um, relational victimization just means like behaviors or experiences that threatens a victim's social reputation or removes relationships. So this can look like gossiping, rumor spreading, teasing, social exclusion, friends giving silent treatments or kind of icing out someone, um, that can be correlated with uh, an increase in risk. And the, the dangerous part about that, it doesn't have to be as repeated or have this imbalance of power like bullying does. Um, it can happen, you know, between peers. And then, uh, of course, bullying, right? We in movies, in media, and in, in the news, I think we see, we hear a lot of correlation between bullying um, and youth suicide. And, and there has been, of course, evidence to show that people who are both on the receiving end and who are perpetrators of bullying both have increased risk um, of suicide, so not just victims. Um, but one thing I thought was interesting is studies have really found that bullying alone is not as strong a risk factor by itself. So when people have kind of those protective factors, um, the ability to kind of cope with things that are happening around them, the their uh, 
outcomes are much better than those um, who don't have those protective factors um, or who have bullying in conjunction with mental health conditions, low social support, things like that. But by itself, it's not as powerful um, a risk factor. Um, okay, so when we move out to the more community societal level, we see um, repeated exposure to community violence and kind of community beliefs around gun use. This can really um, increase their access to lethal means and also kind of normalize the use um, of lethal means for kids. Um, suicide clusters, it's something that comes up in conversations about suicide and it's not as common, um, but it does, when it does happen, it is more likely to impact um, adolescents and suicide clusters is just multiple suicidal behaviors or instances of suicide that happen either in a short time frame or all within the same kind of geographic location. And some, um, the most popular or most famous example is probably the increase in suicides that happened after Marilyn Monroe's death, um, which was speculated to be suicide. Um, so the research isn't really conclusive, but the threat of contagion of suicide is enough to make organizations um, put out guidelines for how the media has to handle suicide, whether it's in TV shows where we see those disclaimers um, or in the news. And then uh, when we move out to kind of the social level, um, we see like subtle discrimination or microaggressions can build up and add to stress, um, stigma around mental health and suicide which we kind of touched on in the beginning. And then of course, again, unhealthy depictions of suicide in the media. Okay, so, so far our conversations around youth suicide have been very harrowing, right? And it's important to have awareness about the groups that are most at risk of suicide. But when we only look at that perspective, it can sometimes make us forget about the resiliency of youth, right? And uh, the resiliency of the identities that we've discussed and their experiences. And so when we hear that 40% of homeless youth have considered suicide, that means 60% have not, right? And so there is amazing resiliency in youth, despite what they've been through with the pandemic or other risk factors. And unfortunately, research kind of invests more in exploring risk factors, you know, of course, because it's such an urgent issue, but sometimes the pr protective factors get lost in that. And so um, I wanted to highlight some of the protective factors too that exist um, that kind of mitigate some of the risk um, that we've discussed before. So when we think about kind of an individual and social level, um, having strong skills for identifying and coping with emotions, being able to identify reasons for living, a connection to a larger purpose or goal, positive connection to one's own um, ethnic identity, because that can also lead to individual pride, but also kind of social interactions, right? It leads to more community um, support. Um, open communication with caregiver and support system, feeling socially connected, and that therapeutic rapport, right? For all of you who are in here, your relationship with your clients is a huge protective factor, right? Your relationship is one that can kind of shape how they view adults, how they view their efficacy, how they view their lovability, right? And so you have a lot of power um, in your roles as helping professions. As we zoom out to the community and social level, like we talked about before, school connectedness is a huge protective factor. Of course, having access to positive community support systems, quality healthcare, economic support for families to relieve and alleviate some of that stress, 
um, training community members and recognizing warning signs so that teachers and coaches and people who are more likely to interface with children more frequently know what to look for and know when to put um, a student on someone else's radar. And then when we think about the social aspect, reducing access to lethal means, religious and moral obligations to suicide, which I have found that religion um, overall in uh, research is still heavily lauded as a protective factor for suicide. I know that it can sometimes be complicated for um, youth who have various experiences with it being weaponized against them, but overall religion and having that appreciation or um, having that ability to see suicide as, as um, not an option still kind of serves as a risk factor according to, to research. Um, and so then, of course, on the, the larger level, campaigns and media responsibility when it comes to mental health. So now that we kind of understand the scope of it, the scope of, of youth suicide, what the numbers are telling us, who's most at risk, um, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into the psychology behind youth suicide. And I think that when we think about conducting risk assessments with children and adolescents, some of that difficulty is, especially with young children, it's really difficult to know how much they understand about the concept of deaths. Um, so I thought it'd be useful to kind of uh, talk about at what age children begin to understand what about death. Um, so when we think about preschool age, and again, the numbers that are written by these categories are, are really fluid. It's, it doesn't have to be at two, they start to learn this, and at five, it stops. You know, it, it can it can be really fluid. These are just approximate ages. Um, but around preschool age is when they start to understand that they pick up on the social cues that adults fear death. They might not necessarily fear it yet, but they know it's something that adults fear, that they have this big emotional reaction to, um, and they can start to use the word dead. Um, they can understand it, it means something different than alive, um, but they still see it as temporary. They still see it as something reversible, like in cartoons where the person's just going to come back. They don't get um, the, the permanency of it. Um, the euphemisms that are used around death for this age group can sometimes be confusing uh, for them. And so again, that kind of, it, it, it conflicts sometimes with their black and white thinking um, that happens in this age group and, and with kind of elementary aged youth as well, where um, they see death as very black and white. You know, it only happens um, in these certain circumstances, um, but it doesn't happen in these, or they might even have kind of causal thinking where they have a thought or you know, one thing happens and, and they have caused a death to happen, um, even if they had nothing to do with it, right? But they might feel kind of feelings of guilt or shame um, as they struggle to understand what causes it. And so they might have that curiosity too about what it is, why it happens. Um, but of course, um, their experience with it can impact their idea of permanency, right? So if they've lost someone who was a constant in their life, um, like a parent or a, you know, a grandparent, and all of a sudden that parent is no longer around, they might be more familiar with the um, permanency of it. So when we think about um, kind of older kids, elementary and middle school age youth, they definitely start to understand the more permanency of it and have a more realistic view of it, especially around age seven to nine. Um, and so 
they start to realize that it's something universal. Everyone dies. Um, they start to, to understand that. And they might get curious about the physical processes of it, what happens um, after a death or how death happens. They also um, then start to come up um, or start to experience that fear and that anxiety around um, death. Um, and that can come from not knowing what happens after people die. It can come from anxiety around being separated from loved ones. Um, it really can come from a lot of different sources, um, but that's when they start to, to develop it around that age. Um, and then high school age is a little bit easier. Um, they start to understand it as permanent and universal as well. Um, again, varied experience might um, alter how they view it, um, but they really start to understand um, what it is and have a more sophisticated understanding of it. Um, but one thing that does happen in high schoolers is they start to feel immortal or exempt from death. You might see that. Um, and so that um, kind of go again, coincides with that brain development that we were talking about before, where we might see an increase in riskier behavior, um, which is why auto insurance rates are so much higher <laughs> in this specific population. Um, but we start to see them kind of think that it happens further away, you know, not to them. Um, but again, experience can change this, right? If they have had close um, experience with death. Okay. Um, so warning signs um, or things that might indicate that there is something going on with, with a youth. Again, these um, have been correlated with suicidality, but it doesn't necessarily mean that just because one is present, that someone is in immediate danger of acting immediately. So investigation and assessment is necessary. So we see things like talking about being a burden, social isolation, withdrawal, hopelessness. Um, these next two, significant changes in behavior or appearance or habits or increased aggression or irritability. Can we think of anything else happening during this time period that also causes these two things, changes in appearance, increased irritability. What else is going on for adolescents? Yep, <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Puberty, hormones, their bodies are changing. Um, and so it's, it's uh, again, important to have that context, that awareness that lots of things are going on for adolescents. There's a lot of change. Um, and so just being aware um, you know, of, of, of what you're seeing. And the ones on the right, um, are, are warning signs that are a little bit more um, discouraging or, or ones that, that kind of warrant a little bit more immediate um, assessment. So like preoccupations with death or in writing. This is especially true for younger kids. Um, you might see like a teacher say that a student wrote a concerning story or they found a concerning drawing on the back of their paper. Um, they're much more likely to put it into writing or drawing because it's just more comfortable for them. Um, direct or indirect threats, notes, again, um, self-injury, things like making final arrangements or attempting to gain access to lethal means. Those are all warning signs that a bigger um, assessment is warranted. Okay, so let's pick back up um, when it's time to assess suicide risk. Um, I like to think of these initial responses as kind of our stretch, our warm-up um, to actually using tools to assess suicide. So the first thing is to remember to ground yourself, right? Whether that's your basic needs, um, preparing yourself for where the conversation could go, remembering your role um, as a co-regulator too. Like if your needs are not met, 
then it's going to be harder for you to meet the needs of your client. Um, and so that could look like, um, you know, like I said, basic needs, taking breaks. Um, it also is um, important because students or children look to you as their co-regulator. They look to you for emotional cues, right? And so if you are um, having a difficult time, if you're panicking, then they're more likely to, to experience that as well, okay? So seeking to understand before fixing, um, so making sure that we're not automatically going into fixing mode, um, determining their understanding of death. So that could look like um, seeing what they understand about death according to their developmental level. So considering their developmental level and their physical age. Um, if necessary, you might have to psychoeducate and then reassess their risk. So you might have to say, I hear you saying that you want to be in heaven with your grandpa. Can you tell me what that looks like for you? Or can you tell me what that would mean for your mom or for your brother? Um, and so they might not realize that being in heaven with their grandpa means that they won't be coming back. Um, so you might have to explain to them, well, actually, when we're in heaven, it means this, you know, if you want to use the same language that they're using. Or actually, death means this. Um, you might have to explain it and then reassess where they're at, reassess if they really have um, suicidal intent or not. Um, and, and asking direct clarifying questions. A lot of times we see um, this myth or this fear that if I ask direct questions or if I ask them directly what they're thinking, excuse me, um, then that's gonna plant the idea in their head, right? Or that's going to um, get them to think about it if they weren't already thinking about it. Um, and that's not um, found to be true. Um, we see that if we ask direct questions, um, it could really sometimes put, it can validate um, that someone is hearing them and understanding what they're saying. Um, and it can also help um, to get exact information that you're looking for. Um, so asking direct questions, it sounds like, you know, this can sound like, um, you know, you're, it sounds like you're describing feeling really sad or overwhelmed um, in these moments. Have you ever thought about harming yourself? Um, especially if you hear them using, using all the language that hints about suicide, but they're not directly saying it. Like, for example, they're um, discussing feeling hopelessness or unbearable overwhelm, right? So these are all things that kind of hint to you like a, an assessment might be necessary. So the goal of assessment, um, the goal is really to just gather as much information as possible. You want to determine the likelihood that a client will act on their suicidal thoughts and appropriate interventions or protective factors that can be leveraged to keep them safe. Okay, so as everything we do, it should be culturally sensitive, trauma-informed, collaborative, engaging, strength-based, responsive to the fluid nature of suicidality, right? The, the level of risk that they might have coming in might be different than what they have at the end, right? And so it changes. And so being responsive to that and as much as possible conducted in a confidential and safe space. So no siblings should be around. Ideally, parents shouldn't be in the room. Other students or teachers, if you're um, visiting them at a school setting, um, keeping it as confidential as possible so that you're able to get the um, most accurate responses. And so these are some of the things that an assessment will gather. Um, we'll see risk factors, 
protective factors, um, their suicidal ideation. So that can include the frequency, the intensity, the duration, current past ideation, or, or what did ideation look like then for when it was most severe. Um, a plan, so that can include timing, location, the, the legitimate lethality of their plan. And again, that's key for kind of the younger kids, right? If they say, my plan is to go to the Golden Gate Bridge, but they live in Los Angeles, really kind of asking additional questions like, okay, well, how do you plan to get there? You know, asking questions about the, the lethality of their plan, just so you can understand it a little bit better. Um, past attempts um, or suicidal behaviors that they've had, and then the level of intent. Um, and so intent just means how much they really plan to carry out their, um, how much they, you you think that they plan to carry out what they've thought about um, and what they've um, prepared for. And then also just the ambivalence between reasons um, for living and reasons for, for wanting to die. That's gonna be key information that you're gonna use later in a safety plan. Um, but that's important for the assessment process. All right. Um, so could I see maybe in the chat um, or feel free to unmute yourself, what are some of the assessment tools um, that your agencies are using um, to assess suicide risk? Okay, so I see the PHQ-9, Columbia, safety. Okay, thank you. So yeah, I'm seeing a lot of Columbia suicide severity risk scale. Um, so a lot of you are, are using that. That seems to be the most popular one. Um, that's where a lot of the research um, hints to that one. So this, um, and it may look a little bit differently. Some agencies use protocols and then kind of tweak them or change the formatting or change some of the questions. This is the one that's on the Columbia um, website for the protocol. Um, and so you'll see it asks, it's pretty short and sweet, which is always nice, especially when you're working with youth um, who have a shorter attention span. Um, but it kind of gets to these main buckets of things that you want to assess during a risk assessment. So have you wished you were dead or wished you would go to sleep and not wake up, which is great framing for youth, right? Sometimes um, if you, they, it, especially for younger students, if you use the word, have you considered suicide? Um, or have you wished you were dead? Um, you might need to scaffold the questioning a little bit depending on their age or kind of any kind of cognitive things that you should be aware of. So wish you were to go to sleep and not wake up, that can really um, allow you to assess ideation. So the ways that these questions are framed are really good. Um, have you had uh, thoughts about killing yourself? So again, moving beyond the ideation to now making it more active. Have they thought about taking an active part in it? Um, have you thought about how you might do this? Okay, so we're starting to, to, to gauge the lethal means, the plan, um, their intent. Um, again, have you started to work out the details? So again, we're really gauging the, the main buckets of what all of these tools are, are really looking to, to gauge is the intent, the plan and the means, right? Kind of those those three buckets. And so this one is a really good one um, for assessing that. One pager is always nice when you're in a quick crisis heavy situation. Um, one uh, adjustment to it that I saw that I thought was really cool is that it's still the Columbia um, suicide uh, risk screener, but it also includes um, 
additional questions to kind of get you to assess their risk factors and protective factors too. Um, so recent events that have been going on, their treatment history, how they're um, presenting in, in your clinic and um, some of the kind of clinical things that you're seeing. Um, I won't go over each, each exact question, but again, it, it kind of gets more of the meat and potatoes of um, how frequently are they happening? Um, how long has this been happening? Um, the, the level of impulsivity or controllability that they feel like they have. And this all, the having a, a, a short and sweet assessment is helpful, but as much information as you can get will really help it to be more robust, right? And so help you to really make those decisions, especially because risk assessments and making those uh, decisions on how to intervene can be so gray. Right. And so the more information you have, the easier it will be to consult with your colleagues, consult with other people and be able to say, you know, I'm, I'm seeing this, but I'm also noticed this protective factor. So maybe we should intervene this way or leverage it this way. Um, so I, I, I really like this one, too, because it, it has um, a way to assess for those risk and protective factors. Um, and then it also at the end has guidelines to determine uh, the level of risk. And so most tools will have this associated with it. It'll tell you, um, it'll give you either a numerical score or just kind of bullets of uh, things that you're seeing and what level of risk that client would, was most likely to be. So whether it's high, moderate, or low. And we'll, we in, in the next couple slides after this, we'll go over what each level means and some kind of best practices for each one. So this seems like this, this Columbia one is the most prevalent that you'll see. I wanted to show you um, as well one that LAUSD utilizes. Again, I, I don't I don't think that there are a lot of school-based practitioners here on the call, but um, it's helpful to to view it. Um, you know, in case you see aspects of it that you like, or in case you want to you know develop it for your own agency. But I also think it's nice because it was specifically written with um, children in mind, keeping in mind um, things that you might um, collaborating partners or parents. Um, so I, I like this one too. So it kind of, this is um, linked in the slides that you'll have. So this is like a whole toolkit um, from LAUSD that has a protocol for responding to students, kind of steps to take. Um, of course, for you, again, if you're not a school-based professional, it wouldn't be students, it would just be, you know, child or youth. Um, but this is just kind of a checklist for things that you can do um, and make sure that your protocols match uh, these best practices. So securing their safety first, um, assessing for risk, using some kind of tool, um, communicating with the parent and guardian, uh, which will, we will, will, sorry, we will go into um, in a little bit just because that is a tricky part of doing risk assessments with youth determining your action plan and considerations. Um, and so here's the actual assessment tool that was just kind of like a pre-checklist to make sure your protocols are what they need to be. So this is the assessment. It's a lot longer than the Columbia um, one, I will say that. So a lot of this information you will either, you might already have if you've been working with the client for a while, or you might have to rely on other data points for it. For example, um, you know, their case manager, if you're a therapist or vice versa, um, their family, if you've used um, inter interviews with them in the past, you might have to, to use a couple of data sources to really completely fill out this intervention. I'm sorry, this assessment. But 
It has, um, the thing I like about it is that it gives you exact um, questions again to, to say exactly how to frame what you're trying to figure out. So current problem and situation. I like starting off with tell me what happened. That's also a common practice um, in restorative justice and restorative practices that we use um, with children. You know, instead of saying, um, starting it off with anything that could feel judgmental or stigmatizing, just open-ended, tell me what's going on. Tell me what happened. And a lot of these pieces you might be able to fill in just by starting off with that question. So um, again, these major buckets that we're um, trying to assess, right? Ideation, intent. Um, one question that's nice is, have you ever shared your thoughts about suicide with anyone else? And this is a great way for you to know if their family already knows, because that will inform how you'll interact with them afterwards. A plan, means and access, past ideation, previous attempts, um, self-injurious behavior. So again, you're really, this is a thorough way to get uh, information on all of those risk um, factors, some of the warning signs that might have come up um, and protective factors. What do you like to do for fun? Some of the stressors that might exist. And again, uh, this is probably something that you will be able to fill out some of these on your own. You won't have to sit there and ask every single question. You might know some of this information. Um, but again, these are just all the things that it's it's important to include in a thorough assessment, protective factors, like I said. And again, this one has, um, it's not as numerical in terms of scoring as the other one, but it's a, a way to say it's more of a narrative way to assign a risk level to youth. Um, so again, this will be linked in the slides, um, but this is one that I like as well. It's typically what I use, obviously, being a school-based provider. The next one, um, I didn't see a lot of it in the chat, so this one might not be as popular. I think this is more used um, in like medical settings for maybe pediatricians and nurse practitioners um, as like more of a universal screener. Um, so for um, you either give it to all clients just to kind of see who is, is struggling with ideation and then you can do a more thorough assessment on those. Um, or if you're pressed for time and you just need to know if it needs to go to another, um, another, uh, excuse me, another provider to do the more thorough assessment and you, you are maybe your job isn't assessing, then you can do this kind of quick screener and then move them along to the person who is in charge of screening um, more thorough assessments. This one just has um, five questions. Um, it's called the Ask Suicide Screening um, tool and just says in the past few weeks, have you wished you were dead? In the past few weeks, have you felt you or your family would be better off if you were dead? In the past weeks, have you had thoughts about killing yourself? And have you ever tried to kill yourself? Have you are you having thoughts of killing yourself right now? So again, still those main well, some of these questions vary, but the major buckets, uh, you know, really covers intent, ideation, plan. Um, and then there's next steps for, for what to do. Again, a, a nice one pager, some telephone numbers, um, but these are all examples of tools to use. Again, agency policy varies. So some of your agencies, again, it sounds like a lot of you have ones that you use, which is great. Um, you know, these are just references for you to um, be able to, to look at others and see what you wanna include, what you don't wanna include. So those were um, 
assessment tools for assessing uh, suicide risk specifically. Um, but I wanted to just include information about some additional assessment tools. So um, the first one we have is the preschool feelings checklist. It looks like a lot of you maybe work with teens, so might not be as relevant. But again, I know that there's limited resources for young clients. So just wanted to put this um, on your radar just in case. So what this measures um, is it identifies preschoolers in need of a formal mental health evaluation for depression. Um, and studies actually show that depression can show up as early as three. Um, and so I know that we think of it as having kind of a later onset, um, but there, there has been um, studies that have shown that it's, it's showing up earlier and earlier. So if there are clients that you're suspecting maybe, um, and maybe you've heard, oh no, they're too young, or you know, we don't really assess for that in clients that young, it does happen. Um, and there are tools to support that population. Um, the next one is the kitty schedule for affective disorders and schizophrenia. Um, so I know that they it's, it has schizophrenia and affective disorders in the title, um, but it does kind of... Uh, assess for all access one disorders. Um, so mood disorders, um, psych psychosis, things like that. Um, and so they have different supplements and different forms of the assessment based on who's filling it out. For example, they have one for the child versus the parent. Um, and they have um, one for younger kids versus adolescents. So there's lots of different um, modules for it. Um, and then it also can, um, part of it, there is a certain module to assess parent report of the child's current and past suicidality. So it is included in that one as well. Um, and then this last one, I saw that some of you put this in the chat that you use the patient health questionnaire nine for teens. So it's a, a good diagnostic tool to, de to detect mood disorders and suicidal ideation. Um, so again, just, um, tools to have in your back pocket. So, once you assess, right, once you have that, that pre-conversation, you've determined that they do indeed understand what death is, um, you have engaged them in an assessment process where you've gathered all the important data, um, you've used your assessment tool, no matter, you know, which one you've chosen. Now, what do I do with all this information, right? How do I determine how high the risk is and what to do with that information? So, um, most assessment tools, like we saw, will have their own guidelines for determining a client's risk, risk level, um, but these sensitive situations are rarely black and white. Um, they rarely fit perfectly into a box, or the number might say one thing, but your gut might say another. Um, so clinical judgment and consultation is always, always, always key um, when determining a risk level, even if that means you fill it out and if possible, when possible, right? Because it's, of course, not always possible. But when possible, you fill it out and you give all the information to another staff member and they fill it out too and see if you guys get the, the same result. Um, so just, again, having that second pair of eyes is, is going to be really important. Okay, so low risk level. So some of you, um, some of you might, it might be easier to, to conceptualize risk level in terms of like a narrative versus a checklist. Um, so for example, the a low risk client might be one um, that is having some thoughts of suicide, maybe some depressive symptoms, but maybe might not have a plan or intent to act on these thoughts. They might have a lot of protective factors at play to kind of mitigate some of that ideation, um, or they have risk factors that that can be modified, like they're they're not risk factors that are unchangeable. 
Um, and so for clients that fit into this category, um, some of the best practices are if they are already in therapy, continuing those services, or if they're not doing a referral, making sure they're getting referred for services. Psychoeducation, again, um, that's always important for, for kids on suicide. So again, what it is, um, that it does happen, breaking that stigma with them and their families. Um, the Again, the LAUSD toolkit that I link in the slides has some really great handouts for parents. I'm, again, I'm sure your organizations already have them, but just in case, um, providing information to the family, creating a safety plan, which we will go over, um, and sharing it with their support system, and then connecting them with hotlines and community resources. So moderate risk. Um, these are clients who have suicidal ideation and may have thought of vague details or lethal means that they have in mind. Um, they might have engaged in um, suicidal or non-suicidal self-injury behaviors in the past, but they may not have an immediate intent to act on their ideation. Um, they might, this client, someone who's moderate risk, might have less protective factors to kind of mitigate that risk. And so a lot of the interventions will still be the same, right? Mental health referrals, safety planning, this is where that lethal means comes into play. So in the in this situation, you're going to want to either reduce or modify their access to lethal means. Um, so at home, that could look like making sure parents are aware to keep the knives separately or make sure the medicine is on a locked cabinet. Um, in a school setting, this could look like the student isn't allowed to have um, scissors in their backpack or sharp objects. So they are they only can use marker um, or they. Um, you don't have to ask to use certain um, tools. Again, these can feel kind of restrictive and sometimes that can feel uncomfortable. And so you have to gauge, you know, where the client's at developmentally, their relationship with the adults in their life to be able to, to do these interventions in a discreet and respectful way. Um, so again, kind of clinical judgment is, is necessary there. Um, for moderate risk, sometimes it does involve, um, you know, an emergency evaluation, be that from the PMRT team um, here in Los Angeles is, you know, I'm sure you all are most of you are familiar with it, um, or, you know, visiting the urgent care or hospitalization if it's one of those clients where it feels like it's moderate, but it could teeter on high, and you just want to make sure you do your due diligence. Um, sometimes it does involve um, hospitalization or um, at least an evaluation. Um, so high risk. Um, so these are clients that um, the, the word that, that most comes to mind is imminent danger, right? You are really concerned that this client has um, thoughts of suicide. They have a plan developed. They have lethal means in mind that are realistic, right? Again, when we think about younger children, we have to evaluate how realistic it is, um, but they might not have a lot of protective factors or a support system in place. And so these are the clients that you are worried if you do not intervene right now, they will go home and harm themselves. Um, the interventions for these kind of clients are continuous monitoring. These clients um, should not be left alone. They should constantly be um, supervised by you or a uh, another clinician or you know a colleague of yours. Um, Short-term and long-term safety planning. So how are we going to keep this client safe? for the next couple of hours um, and how are we going to keep the client safe after this risk assessment. Um, again, removing all access to lethal means, 
um, initiate whatever your agency's protocol is. And so I know that for some agencies, you have the power to initiate um, going directly to the hospital. Some you have to call um, access first. So whatever your agency protocol is um, for initiating either um, an evaluative team to come out to the site where you're at, to the house, or going directly to the hospital. And then collaborating with the client and family to inform them of every step along the way. So here's where we're at. Here's who I'm calling. Here are the outcomes that could happen from this call. Do you have any questions? So even if there are things that you can't always get exact consent for because you're having to breach confidentiality in order to hospitalize, hospitalize you still want to try and get informed consent as much as possible by informing them of every step before it happens. So again, safety planning is a common um, intervention that was on each of these risk levels. So it's really an, an important one to use, especially for kids. So it's a living document and I put in bold created by the client um, with support from the clinician. So this isn't something that we are filling in as clinicians, because if it's not in their words and it's not using interventions or protective factors that feel good for them, then it won't be as effective, right? And so we want to make sure they're driving it. Um, this keeps the support system and the client grounded in moments of client, I'm sorry, in moments of crisis is something that they can come back to, and it provides guidance to keep them safe. So important things it should have, it should list their triggers, their warning signs. And this is especially important for kids to learn their body, to learn how they know they're getting escalated. Coping strategies, support system, preferred settings that they feel most calm or protected in, hotlines, protective factors or reasons to live. Again, it's that one is especially key that that's driven by the client, that they're identifying their own reasons to live. Um, and environmental changes they may need to make to their classroom, their home, you know, wherever to feel most safe and in control of their actions. So um, do you, this is again a question either for the chat or for you to um, feel free to unmute yourself. Are there any specific templates that you all use at your um, agencies when it comes to safety planning um, or, or ones that you prefer? Stanley Brown, yeah. Yeah, so again, seems like a, the most popular common tool is Stanley Brown um, safety planning intervention. And I put the link right here in case you need it. Um, oh, there's an app online. Yeah, perfect. Um, so yeah, a lot of the safety plans that I've seen are, are all kind of based on this one. So this is kind of the, the gold standard for safety plan templates. So again, you I kind of zoomed in so you can see the different aspects of it, but it has those most important things, right? The warning signs, coping strategies, people in social settings that provide distraction, excuse me, people who I can ask for help during a crisis. For that one, you, it's, and sometimes it's going to be difficult for kids to identify an adult to put there, but you always want to encourage them to at least think of one adult that they can put there. Because if on their safety plan, all the people that they call in terms of a crisis are all fellow eight-year-olds, it won't be as helpful, right? And so you wanna, it, it, even if they can't, 
you know, think of one as much as you can try and encourage them to at least include a few trusted adults on their safety plan. And then the important part too, is that those adults who are on their safety plan need to be informed that way, should this student or should this child come to them in the moment of a crisis, they know how to help. So that might involve some coaching on your part. You know, you have been identified as a a trusted adult for X, Y, Z. If they come to you for help, here's what you can do, right? And so make sure they have numbers to hotlines. Make sure they have your your contact information if you feel comfortable giving it out. Um, You know, making sure they feel equipped. That way we're setting the child up for success. We're not sending them to someone who is uh, inequipped to handle um, their, their situation in a crisis. This is another example, again, from that LAUSD toolkit um, that I spoke about earlier. Um, Again, obviously, it's one that I'm most familiar with, and it has, you know, pretty much the same um, information, triggers, warning signs, coping skills, places I feel safe, um, school support, um, so ways that schools can support them. There's a couple of boxes that sometimes feel redundant, but I see it as school support is how the school can keep them safe at school. Adult support can be any adult. So it can be an adult at school, at home, in the community, um, who they want to rely on. And then parent support, which can be different, right? What I need my coach and my teacher to do is different than what I need my legal guardian to do, right? And so I like that I like that it's teased out um, for kids. And then case carrier support. So that just means whoever is either doing this with them or whatever adult is mostly in charge of professionally advocating for that student. So that could be their school counselor, it could be their case manager, it could be their therapist, whoever is mostly in charge of kind of case managing for that child. So this is um, the same thing, just um, modified for younger kids. And so for um, younger kids, you want to make sure that you're meeting them where they're at, right? So where their reading level is, you want lots of pictures, lots of opportunities for them to color um, in what they're feeling or, or what's going on. And so I really like the kind of scaffolded way that this gets that same information, um, but in ways that are a little bit more kid-friendly. So again, this is in that in that toolkit. And then additional examples. I mean, you can, if you're familiar with Etsy or Teachers Pay Teachers, you can find just about anything um, online if you're willing to pay for it. Um, and so I think that especially for adolescent teens, um, giving them kind of... Uh, autonomy to pick a template that they like the best or um, one that looks prettiest to them or is most colorful, having that autonomy can really help their buy-in. So, you know, my my only suggestion is to make sure that it still has the same buckets that, you know, the best practices have. So the same ones that the Stanley Brown one uses um, or follows, you know, whatever your documentation protocols are at your organization. Um, but, you know, picking something that that the the youth likes, like I said, especially for adolescents, um, that they like, that looks pretty to them, that looks cool. Um, you know, as, of course, the older we get, the more we are removed from what cool is, right? Um, but uh, thinking through, um, you know, that that can really help with their buy-in. And so, you know, I, I think that that's also um, a great option for, for child safety plans. All right. So assessment consideration and some barriers that can come up. And so I think when we think about um, risk assessments for youth clients, maybe the the biggest hurdle, and sometimes not, it could be the biggest partnership, um, or it can be one of the, the, the hardest hurdles, is partnering with the caregiver, right? Because there is so much 
legal and ethical things at play. Um, and so because they are minor clients, you are legally obligated a lot of times to collaborate with the legal guardian in some capacity. Um, and for some, that might be a little bit easier because they might be on a more intensive caseload. For example, if they were referred to FSP because of you know su suicidal ideation, the parent might already be aware of these issues. And so it might not be um, as dramatic as say a cold call um, to a parent who has no idea that that their child was even considering any of this. Um, and so, you know, it's it's important to know and assess what the parent already knows um, before we, we even think about contact. Um, but when we think about consent and confidentiality, um, most of the times for a lot of the clients on your caseload, they should have had to sign, the legal guardian should have had to sign some kind of consent form. Um, or something signing them up for services. So just making sure that your consent form always has those kind of exceptions to confidentiality, right? And so that you sometimes have to breach confidentiality in, in times of mandated reporting, or if you're worried about the safety of a client. So just making sure that language is always on your consent forms and that you're going over that with your caregiver um, or with the child's caregiver um, at the beginning of any relationship um, clinically. Um, Involving the client, um, I think that, well, let me let me back up. Um, when it comes to when to contact the caregiver, I think every agency kind of has their own protocol. Some say, uh, you know, some supervisors or agencies might say, you need to call the parent before you assess. Some might say, call only after and only if it's moderate to high risk. Some say, call after no matter what. And so, you know, definitely use your discretion, whatever your agency um, prefers. And so what I think best practice and, and to preserve your therapeutic relationship, you always want to, if you do decide that you're contacting the caregiver, you want to let the client know. Um, and sometimes if they've already said that they've disclosed to their caregiver, it might be, you know, it might not be a big deal to them. They might say, yeah, my mom already knows, or I already talked to my grandma about it. Um, or, you know, if it's, especially if it's chronic, um, it might not be a, as big an issue. But sometimes it is. Um, there have, I would say, more than half um, of the times kids are not thrilled when I've told them, you know, after our conversation today, in order to keep you safe, I do have to call mom or dad to let them know, um, you know, about my concerns for you. Um, and so a couple of ways to kind of make that process a little bit easier is to involve them um, as much as you can. So, um, you know, you can call the parent together you can let the child tell the parent or the guardian um, about what's going on. And then you kind of fill in, you know, the gaps of, of what might be necessary. Um, one thing that I found to be really helpful is telling the child or the adolescent exactly what you have to tell the parent and what you don't have to. Because for them, they might think, okay, now everything that I've ever told my therapist or my case manager, they're going to go tell my parent. No, right? You, I don't have to breach every single confidentiality that I've ever had with you. I only need to tell them what's pertinent for them to keep you safe. So that sometimes that can ease some of their anxiety as well, that they know, you know, you won't have to disclose other things that don't pertain to their safety. Um, so like I said, calling together can be really helpful. For young um, children, I think at the beginning of every session, especially in the beginning of working with a student, I'm sorry, with a, with a child, um, reminding them of, of confidentiality, what it is, right? I, I like, uh, I used to have a sign in my office that I like to reference to, like, 
everything that you say in here stays in here unless, right? I'm worried about your safety that, you know, you might hurt yourself or someone else or someone's hurting you, right? And just kind of putting it in that simple language for young kids um, and reminding them, you know, and during your check-ins or in the beginning of every session or meeting with them um, can be really helpful. Um, Sometimes they'll have a, a child say, you know, if I tell you something, will you keep it a secret? Never blindly say yes to that question as much as we would love to, Um, you know, and of course we are that safe space for them. You can say yes, as long as, right, it doesn't involve your safety, you know, my my concerns about your safety. Um, And so having having that boundary is important so they don't feel as slighted or betrayed when you have to breach that confidentiality because they were um, warned about it. One thing that you'll also maybe have to do is kind of managing challenging caregiver responses. And so really trying as much as you can to, you know, have compassion for the parent, of course, and for any parent to hear that there is fear, there's anxiety, you know, there's there's panic that can come up. And so just honoring that for the parent, validating that, labeling that, um, and, and maybe helping to coach them through it. So like we talked about before, providing psychoeducation on them and like, you know, um, it's, it's not uncommon for teens to experience this or giving statistics or, you know, whatever you can to not normalize it, but, but let them know that there's not something, you know, horribly wrong with their child, right? It happens. It, it's a result of these, you know, various risk factors. And so, um, and again, talking through every single step, right? This is what I'm going to do next with this information. These are the possible outcomes of that information. Here's how I'll support you during this. Here's how I'll support you after. So just making sure they're very clear on what exactly is happening with their child or grandchild or whoever the relationship is. Mandated reporting, another very fun topic when it comes to working with kids, um, unfortunately. Um, So remember, if you work with, with children in any capacity, you're most likely a mandated reporter. Um, So even in these situations, um, if you are assessing and allegations of child abuse come up, you still are obligated to to make that report. So unfortunately, sometimes it's it's kind of a two two agencies that you'll have to call, um, you know, in in response to these situations. Um, So again, if you're faced with a situation where you are worried that informing the parent or legal guardian may uh, of the risk assessment or of what's happening may put the child in even more danger, then, you know, use clinical judgment and, and consult with your supervisor and agency policies to, to know if you should um, continue with informing the parent or not. Um, but again, if you're concerned about safety or neglect, then of course you, you're going to make a child abuse report. Um, One thing that is often not known that is reportable is if you are working with a family and there are steps that a family is supposed to be taking in order to keep a child safe. Um, So, you know, a safety plan or they're supposed to take them to the hospital or there are just things in place and you are gravely worried about the child's danger and you feel like the caregiver, for whatever reason, um, may not be keeping them safe. um, That also can be reportable. So that's also kind of a a complex part of um, mandated reporting as well. Um, Cultural considerations, um, just making sure that as with any therapeutic activity, you're practicing cultural humility. So using language translators as needed, um, you know, so that families and caregivers understand exactly what you're communicating with them or or clients. Um, 
you know, I, the idea of using a cultural translator, right? If there's a practice that a family is referring to, or the child is speaking about death or, um, you know, afterlife in a certain way that you just really don't understand, finding out as much as you can about the cultural views of that client and their family when it comes to death so that you're really assessing um, in the, in the most thorough way that you can. And then lastly, just really considering the developmental and cognitive abilities of your client. Um, so in your work with a client, you know, especially with children, we see how long some of these assessment tools are, right? And so if you're sitting there asking a client, a, a six-year-old, 30 questions, their attention is going to wane, their energy is going to wane, right? And so making sure that you're, during the assessment process, doing whatever you need to do to match where they're at developmentally. So again, whether that's fidgets, um, whether that's having them draw, whether that's using media, right? Can you play me a song on YouTube that matches how you're feeling right now? Um, you know, just using various means to engage with them because talk therapy um, does not work the same with them as it does for adults. And so you're really going to want to um, make sure that you modify it. Um, a part of your work, whether you're a case manager or a therapist, especially if you're a therapist, um, you always want to partner with the school to understand if the child um, or adolescent has any um, developmental delays or intellectual disabilities that you should be aware of, um, especially if they have an IEP um, or individualized education plan, because this plan is going to have accommodations that the school uses to best um, support them. Those are things you also want to make sure you're having in your sessions as well. And so if um, it's necessary for this child at school to have a text-to-speech uh, modification for their work, then you know that that's something that you should implement in sessions, right? To make sure that they're getting the most out of your work together. So just collaboration is, is key. All right, the final uh, 10, 15 minutes of this presentation will be all about you, right? The clinician. Um, so some things that can come up um, for you uh, because clinical judgment is such a key part of risk assessments because these situations can often be so gray and so subjective, it can feel really high stakes, right? And, and I think um, one uh, training that I went to uh, that was, it, it put it perfectly where she said, we want to make sure we're distinguishing a gut feeling versus just our own distress relief. And so we might say, oh, it would make me feel so much better to just kind of hospitalize this child so that I don't have to worry about it or, or, or worry if I'm making the right decision. But we didn't thoroughly really see if that was the most appropriate intervention for that child. And so just making sure that you're checking in, is it a gut feeling because of clinical judgment or am I just trying to relieve some of my anxiety? Okay, so just making sure that you're not convoluting the two. Um, when it comes to working with youth, it's really easy to, to do one of two things to kind of over-identify if we're working with a client that's similar to us, a family that's similar to ours, you know, how we, we think of how we would want to be treated in that situation or how we would have intervened with ourselves or, or I made it through it. So, you know, they'll be fine. Um, but you know, we want to treat every client, every family in their own individual way, right? We want to kind of remove ourselves. And on the opposite end, um, we want to check in with our biases, right? Are we working with any children or families that are completely different from us and kind of challenge the norms or what we think a family should look like or how a family should respond um, to a child? So just always keeping that in mind. Same thing with countertransference, just making sure that we're, especially in the, in the therapeutic relationship, um, making sure that we're always kind of keeping a pulse on that. 
Um, and, and finally, burnout from a high needs client or, or a high needs caseload, right? There might be clients or um, youth that you work with that require multiple assessments. It might become, you know, a weekly thing or something where you're regularly having to conduct risk assessments for this child, which can become draining and, and can run the risk of desensitizing you to be able to accurately assess their risk level, especially when it's chronic. Um, and, and it can lead us to kind of slip back into that thinking of attention-seeking behaviors rather than being able to view it as helping help-seeking behaviors. And so in those moments, just making sure you're keeping a pulse, you're being honest about yourself. There's no yeah, counter-transference, biases, all these things happen. We are human, right? They We're humans in, in these very hard subjective situations. So just making sure you're being honest with yourself and getting supervision, getting support from your colleagues um, when you need it to try and make sure that these things that are natural to happen, because again, we're adults, that they're not interfering with your work. Um, so after the intervention, what are some things that we should be doing? Documentation. I'm sure if um, I'm sure no one here um, has never heard the phrase, if it wasn't on paper, it didn't happen. Right. So I'm sure we're all familiar with the importance of documentation. Um, so I don't have to hone on that too much, um, but just making sure you're trying to do it while it's still fresh. Um, you know, after risk assessments, I know I was would be so exhausted. I would say, I'll just do it in the morning, right? But then when you get there, you don't remember everything that happened. You don't remember everything they said. And so trying as much as you can to, to document everything while it's still fresh, you know, there are risks and rationales for everything, right? I, um, they said this. And so I, my rationale for labeling them as this risk level was this. So here was my intervention. Here's my rationale. Here are going to be my next steps, right? And again, your agencies might have different, um, protocols. So, you know, following that, but just making sure that you have some kind of documentation system. Um, a re-entry plan um, might be needed for the client. Maybe not, but, you know, it's a re-entry plan is essentially what steps do we need to take to, to keep them safe at home or when they return to our office or when I, you know, as the clinician go back into to see them in the home or whatever. Um, so this, you know, is a collaborative effort just to make sure you're debriefing with the family and the client on how that experience was for them. Um, you know, what in there, especially for children um, after something uh, like a risk assessment happens, especially if they had to be hospitalized, you want to give them that space to debrief. What do you think happened? Why do you think we had to call, you know, the agency that we did for you? How did that feel? And so giving them that chance to processing it um, with you can be really powerful for you to see maybe the misconceptions. Um, you know, they might say, oh, I, you had to call the ambulance because I was bad, right? So dispelling some of the myths that they might have or believe about themselves, um, that debriefing and reentry is going to be really powerful. And that also can be an opportunity to repair the therapeutic relationship if you need to. They might be upset with you. They might be mad that you called their parent or that you had to call access or that you had to take them to the hospital. So, you know, just... Um, repairing that you, what you, explaining that you did what you did out of safety, out of concern for them. Here's how I'm going to continue to show up for you. Um, just assuring them that you are a stable, trusted um, provider in their, in their life. You are going to, um, assessment doesn't stop after one risk assessment, right? So you're going to want to continue to assess, um, especially if a client was hospitalized. Um, when they return, you're going to continue to assess where they're at. Um, inter other interventions. Um, this this training specifically is not as intervention heavy, but if that's something that you're interested in, like say you want to see more interventions for, 
suicidality. This was more about kind of assessment and prevention, but please feel free to put it in your course evaluation, like future topics that you'd be interested in. Um, we're beefing up our, our trainings specifically geared towards children and, and adolescents. So if there's more ideas or more topics you want, especially around intervention, please feel free to put it in your evaluation. Um, but some some uh, interventions that come up are, you know, building that their social connection, the family connection. Um, so lots of um, evidence supports like family therapy um, modalities that support family communication um, in your either your therapeutic work with them or if you're not the therapist, you know, suggesting to the therapist. Um, you really are wanting to build their emotional awareness and their emotional tolerance. And so one thing that I think can happen in clinical work with youth and children is um, we, I'm going to, I'm going to treat the depression and by doing that, then the, it'll help with the suicidal ideation, or I'm going to treat this and that will help with suicidal ideation. But you want to make sure that you're utilizing interventions that specifically target um, suicidality. And so SAMHSA had a great report kind of on promising interventions, so I linked that here. DBT, of course, um, is, is the most popular one, and I think a few of your agencies and organizations have opportunities to maybe engage in training, so I hope that you're able to take advantage of that, um, because that is, you know, the, the most popular one to specifically uh, been shown to have great uh, outcomes for children and adolescents dealing with suicidal ideation. All right, supporting yourself. Um, so a couple of, of quotes that I like. Um, Self-care is giving the world the best of you instead of what's left of you. The time to relax is when you don't have time for it. And I think that that perfectly um, describes um, when you're in a crisis situation. Uh, for those of you who struggle with guilt regarding self-care, answer this question. What greater gift can you give to those you love than your wholeness? Um, so making sure that you do not get lost in this process. Um, the risk of burnout for healthcare professionals is great. It's twice as high as other professions, right? And I consider you all healthcare professionals because mental health is healthcare. Um, so healthcare providers are at risk for coping strategies that are mal are more at risk for maladaptive coping strategies and, and health um, impacts from the stress. And so um, one, uh, analogy that I heard that I love is that we as helping professions, we as providers are like a washing machine. Um, sorry, that the, the, the process is like a washing machine. And so when we think about um, the, uh, the client puts all of their uh, trauma and all of their crises inside of us, right? And if we're thinking about, excuse me, a dryer, sorry, I'm messing up the analogy, but if we're thinking about the, the clinical process as um as a dryer and all of the, the client is putting their clothes inside of us, right? That means their um, their risk factors, their protective factors, their, their trauma that they're coming in with. We as clinicians are like the lint trap. So we're kind of sifting through everything, taking out the, the negative and trying to funnel it into something more positive. Um, but, you know, if you don't clean out the lint trap, you know um, that uh, a dryer can't function properly. And that's the same thing for our clinical work. It can't function properly if we're not taking care of ourselves. So some things, um, some of the stress that can come during risk assessments comes from some of the, the automatic thoughts that come up for us. So, oh my gosh, the client's life is in my hands. What will happen to them once they leave my office? What if I don't ask the right questions? How do I know if they're telling the truth? 
how long will this take, right? A client is coming in my office at five with a risk assessment. I have to go pick up my child, right? Or what if I make the wrong call? What if I get fired or sued? Um, So imagine having all of those thoughts going on in your mind while also physically looking at all the questions that you're supposed to think of answers to to gather a risk assessment. It's It's a surefire recipe for burnout. Um, so some simple ways that you can take care of yourself during a risk assessment is creating a therapeutic environment for both of you. Um, what I would do if I was doing a risk assessment sometimes is I would kind of dim the lights, put on a diffuser, put on calming music while I'm conducting to conducting the risk assessment, because that's going to benefit both of us. It's going to put me in a more calm um, situation so that I can be better prepared to handle it. And it's going to help the client calm down. Um, You know, doing a risk assessment isn't, it it is about gathering data to make, to make um, an informed decision, but it's that, that the risk assessment is also a therapeutic intervention in itself. Right. And so making sure that that environment is as um, positive as possible. Um, Setting intentions before you conduct the risk assessment, like during that stretch period that we were talking about earlier, where you're kind of gearing up to, to, to get into the risk assessment, setting intentions like I will do my best work to protect this client in your mind, or this client will feel safe with me. Or, I will be fully present to meet the needs of my client. Just kind of setting the intention to anchor you um, in these moments. Leveraging your coworkers. If you can, I know not everyone is able to do this, but when possible, swapping out, you know, doing um, doing it in tandem with another um, clinician or getting consultation as much as you can. Transition rituals. Um, and this is, is a lot easier, I acknowledge, for people who have more defined hours who are able to leave versus people who may be on call 24-7. Um, but making sure that you are having some kind of physical transition in your mind to signify, okay, the end of my work shift is over, right? So whether it's when you take off your lanyard whether it's you put your keys in a certain place or you listen to a end of work meditation on your way home. Um, there's plenty on YouTube that are really great. Um, but making sure that there's some kind of physical tr- uh, transition that you do to signal to your to your brain that you're no longer in crisis mode. That can be really powerful because it's like a light, right? If you forget to turn that light off when you get home, you're still in crisis mode from the risk assessments that you conducted today. And so making sure you you have that switch. Um, engaging in mindfulness during the risk assessment. So when you can, again, I'm always a proponent of fidget toys, give the client one, give yourself one, um, listening to your body. Um, if you need to, if you're able to, and it's safe to do so, especially for a low risk client, take a walk while you conduct the risk assessment, go walk outside. Again, if it's safe to do so, if it's low risk and you're not worried about the client, you know, if it's an enclosed space, like a schoolyard or something, um, but, you know, taking a walk, doing the five, four, three, two, one um, technique where you, you know, look at five things, count five things around you that you see, four things that you can hear, three things that you can feel, anything to ground yourself to keep your brain from uh, going through all those, those thought bubbles that we just saw on the other slide. Um, one thing that I think is really interesting is trying to use compassion instead of empathy. Um, when you're doing a risk assessment, a risk assessment, uh, I'm sorry, empathy requires you to place yourself in other shoes um, and you can kind of get lost in that trauma and in that crisis and your brain sometimes can't tell the difference. So you feel like you're personally in crises, whereas compassion, it's a little more removed. It's not pity, right? But it's a little more removed where we're still able to acknowledge their hurt 
and attend to their hurt with kindness, but we're not putting ourselves in, in, in that crisis ourselves. Um, um, using compassion for yourself and positive self-talk during it the same way you would with a client, right? You can tell yourself, this is incredibly difficult. Um, you know, anyone would feel stressed out if they were you. This is really hard. You have dealt with difficult situations before. You will get through this situation. Talk to yourself like you were a client, you know, and so and, and coach yourself through that. Um, advocating for caseload diversity. Um, there is a statistic that I think, you know, I'm, I'm sure might be laughable for some of us who work with high trauma populations. But it says that a client should not spend more than 60% of their time or more than three days working with trauma survivors. So if your caseload and, and five days of the week are going to clients with heavy crisis, heavy trauma, that plays a role um, in your mental health. And so there's, of course, only so much power you have over that, um, but just making sure you're taking stock of your caseload and, and things that are, are coming up for you. Um, and then, you know, yourself having a reentry plan. What am I going to advocate for tomorrow to make sure I'm taking care of myself um, when I come back to work tomorrow or the next day? Are we not going to get to the vignettes today? But again, you have these slides, but go through these vignettes on your own time or do them with your um, staff to see where you're at. Get that comfort with um, assessing risk and see where you would um, you would uh, categorize this client. See if your staff agrees, right? See if your coworkers agree and how they would view it, right? And that's the good learning tool for you as well. So there's a, a few vignettes for you. There's tons of great resources. Again, shout out to my colleague, Danielle Cameron, who added these, some great resources online to give to your youth clients. Um, and all the references here, should you wanna look at the research later. Um, but yeah, that is it. Um, thank you all. You have been an amazing um, audience for this training. So engaged. So I really, really appreciate it. I hope that it was helpful for you. Um, and thank you all so much.